0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance, and I appreciate you guys so much for joining me. And let's just address the elephant in the room. I was gone for a pretty long time, and I do apologize for that. Uh, There was just a lot of stuff going on in my life. Obviously, I don't have to get into detail, um, but I do feel a little bit obligated to let you guys know that... Obviously, I I apologize, and I should have been able to be consistent regardless, um, especially for consistent listeners, Um, so I do apologize for the hiatus, and I'm happy to say that I'm back, and I'm able to prioritize this, and I'm able to consistently get episodes out to you guys weekly, and yeah, I'm excited to be back, so I appreciate you guys for continuing to listen if you did. For those of you guys that are, like I said, frequent listeners, I, I really do appreciate you guys. Um, and yeah, so before getting into today's episode, I do want to go over kind of the format going forward. It's going to be similar and very consistent to what I've done in the past, um, obviously covering skill development, strength and conditioning, or performance Uh, For basketball players, and I'm going to get guests on. I'm going to be talking about topics myself with solo episodes and so forth. But a little bit different is I'm going to introduce a little bit more of a series, um, and that's going to be our athlete series. So I'm going to invite athletes, and these athletes are going to be a variety of different levels. They might be Division One, Division Three, two. I might get a guy from SMCC potentially. Who knows? Um, I'll get men, women. Like I said, pros doesn't matter what level they're at. I am just interested uh, to get athletes' perspective on the show. And I think that it would be an interesting perspective, an interesting series going forward. And we're going to talk about their journeys, talk about their perspective, if they're pro, if they're Division One, what has their experience been like, uh, what is their journey to get to that spot, um, and all these different things, how they train, what they think about their training. Um, I know some of their trainers already have a lot of guests lined up. So I'm excited for that, and I think that you guys will enjoy that. Like I said, it's going to be a separate series, uh, an athlete series. We might fool around with um, instead of just Wednesdays, I might do that series on another day and then guest and regular solo episodes on Wednesdays consistently. So just to give you a little bit of an update, like I said, everything will be consistent except for now I'm adding a different series, um, and that will be the athlete series where we get athletes on, get their perspective, and yeah. So... Anyways, enough of all that kind of stuff. For today's episode, we have a great guest on. His name is Alex Sarama, and he is a basketball coach. And Alex is, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I think that he is a genius, especially when it comes to development in basketball. He is an avid researcher he's immersed in the research in the literature behind skill acquisition he is immersed in the ecological dynamics of it all and the cla or the constraints of that approach and he talks a bunch about this stuff in this episode and he's just a highly highly educated individual and professional in this field and you can tell how educated this dude is based on how simple he makes some of these concepts sound in this episode. And I think that that's absolutely a tribute to his hard work reading and applying this research and all this literature. So big shout out to Alex for everything that he provided in this, in this show. Um, I'm not going to provide too much more about Alex other than that he is from the UK. He's been involved in a plethora of different programs. Uh, most notably it's called the college prep. It was in Italy. It was a three-year program that he was orchestrating himself. Obviously he had some help, but he was the main guy there and he helped develop a bunch of players from all over the world for 10 months for three years. Um, and it was incredible. You can see a lot of this stuff on basketball immersion uh, throughout YouTube, on Instagram, all these different things. He's helping out Paris's team right now. Um, and then he's also been involved with the NBA to start his career. Um, and he will be back in the NBA very, very soon. I cannot tell you guys the team quite yet because that's not um, exposed information but i'm sure that it will be soon so without further ado um, alex explains a little bit more about who he is and please please get a pen get a piece of paper use your notes on your phone because there's a lot of good information here please enjoy alex is great without further ado alex roma all right what's up everybody and welcome back to the tcp podcast this is tyler clark with tc performance appreciate everybody for tuning back in super excited for today um, I got Alex Sarama. I'm super excited for this. If you guys don't know who Alex is, um, Alex, I know we have somewhat limited time. So if you want to just give a quick background on who you are, kind of what you're about, and then we can get right into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, Tyler, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. You know, it was, It's just so refreshing. I, I went on when you first sent it to me and I scroll back past episodes and you know, you're talking about things like an affordance, and for me, it's just, it's music to my ears because I've I've really been hoping for some while for a while now that the basketball world starts changing and adopting contemporary ideas based on skill acquisition, and that's basically where you know where my passion is. It's looking at the research world and looking at you know what is the research telling us, and then how as coaches. Or, you know, other practitioners such as athletic performance, trainers, physios, etc. You know, how can we apply this research into our practice and what we're doing every day? So I'm from the UK originally, um, grew up uh, loving the game, spent uh, a number of years working for the NBA where I I ran all their uh, basketball kind of clinics, camps across Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, and then since then, I've been spending three years in Italy, where I was running a program called College Prep, and the whole essence of that was essentially to basically pioneer evidence-based ideas and looking at what skill acquisition I, uh, looks like in in a practical setting when it's applied and interpreted correctly. And I've recently just moved to uh, the London Lions, where I'm, I'm acting as director of methodology, which is a very new position in the basketball world. But basically, it's all aligned with kind of everything I mentioned to date. And I'm also going to be working with an NBA organization. I can't unfortunately reveal who it is yet until they announce it uh, sometime in the next few weeks.
0: Absolutely. Appreciate a little bit of the background. Um, <clears throat> so I I do want to get into the nitty gritty of, of kind of the science behind your approach. Um, but there have been a couple episodes with other guests as well as myself where we kind of break down terminology. So rather than kind of going over uh, like the baseline terminology of what like CLA is affordances and variability repetition without repetition. Um, I would like guests to go back and listen to some of that other stuff. And then we can kind of just discuss some broader concepts, maybe more specific, I should say. Um, So the first thing I'd like to talk about is, and this is uh, something that you put a blog out about, and it seems to be you're pretty passionate about it. Um, The idea of fundamentals and kind of skill as a whole and kind of the perception on skill throughout the community of coaches and, and trainers. Um, I actually had a discussion with, uh, I I'm currently on staff with the college basketball team, uh, in Maine. So myself and two of my peers were just discussing our preseason and kind of what skill is, um, how we're approaching the preseason, how can we get the most out of it? What is our goal? So forth. So could you just start by kind of Defining skill, what that is to you, and then kind of uh let's let's just start with that. What what is skill to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say in its simplest term, it's the relationship between the player and their environment. So the environment, I mean, what I mean by that is the you know, what we what we would see in the performance environment would have teammates, defenders. So, you know, how can players successfully interact with everything they're experiencing within that environment? to then self organize into a movement solution that's functional and you alluded to it Tyler, when I, when we talk about fundamentals for me it's it's functional not fundamental and right. you know the reason i say that is because the environment within the game it's ever changing it's never going to be the same you know sometimes we might see movement solutions which look similar but they're never going to be exactly the same. It's it's physically impossible. And and the work of Nikolai Bernstein almost a century ago kind of showed us that, and it had big implications for the motor learning world. So we can't repeat techniques. And, and then if we understand that, it leads to the question of, you know, why as coaches do we practice so frequently in these environments where we're teaching fundamentals, things in the vacuum, and we're asking players to repeat things excessively You know, rote repetition. So that is kind of the essence to this approach is really understanding what skill is. And I think to do that, Tyler, we actually have to understand human movement. Because if we understand as coaches how human movement actually occurs, well, then we can actually design methodologies in line with with that. So this whole belief that skills are merely techniques and things that have to be taught and have to be implanted in the players' heads, you know, really that's just inaccurate. And I think that's where contemporary skill acquisition research, it just tells us as coaches there's another way.
0: Absolutely. And I I kind of want to take that and continue to roll with it. So I think that, um, and you're doing a phenomenal job of trying to reach as many coaches as you can, trainers, um, you and a couple other people, just to name, like I think Nola Roche is doing a great job. One hundred percent, Noah. I,
1: yeah, Noah. No, I had a Noah's great. We had a very long uh, catch up in Vegas in summer league, and yeah, great. we obviously were completely aligned.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think Noah's also doing a great job um, with the concepts, with just expanding kind of the perception of training and how we can improve as coaches. And I think that something that Noah does well and is brought to my attention as well um, is kind of taking away the idea of trainers versus coaches and I like it doesn't have to be separate. And a lot of the time on staff, you'll have obviously the head coach, player development coach. And it's kind of like the communication isn't always there. We're not doing things that could be always so conducive. So your approach is a lot more holistic where it's like, it doesn't even matter. You don't have a player development session and then your your team practices, especially with some stuff that I've seen for college prep when you were coaching with them. It's like everything is happening at once. You do have yeah. some separate sessions, I'm sure, but talk to me about that because the perception on that is sure we still need to have our sessions excluded yeah. from practices.
1: Well, Tyler, that's a fantastic observation and I'm so glad you brought it up because it's For me, it's one of the biggest misconceptions of what player development is and and what it's about. So I I call it siloed organizational thinking, where what we see is we have in, and it's very common even in in the NBA, where we have these departments which are in their complete separate silos, head coaches, player development staff, physio, athletic performance, and you know, I'll get later, I'll allude to why that is. But I think the biggest silo, like you said, is between player development and team development. And I don't, I just call myself a basketball coach. And I had this conversation with Noah and Joe Boylan. Joe's the the assist, an assistant coach at the Timberwolves. And how we view ourselves is we're basketball coaches. We have to know about shooting. We got to know about player development. And critically, we got to know about principles of play because, we have to know how our players are interacting within their environment. And this is what we, what we've seen traditionally in the skills training industry is a huge focus on individual moves. And I I call it static one-on-one. Now, of course, you know, if you were to have maybe the top 0.1% of global basketball players, the likes of James Harden, Steph Curry, LeBron, then, you know, doing static one-on-one could be useful. However, for the majority of players, that is not their role and that's not how they play. And, and that means what we need to do is expose them to the affordances, aka okay, the opportunities for action, that they will be exposed to within their performance environment. So this is why, you know, I think it's critical to develop uh, individual skill. And for me, that would mean increasing functionality within different part, uh, areas of the game, increasing adaptiveness, such as shooting, finishing, passing. But even then... I don't really like categorizing skills because I think everything happens together. And that, that's how the game is played. It's all these numerous in- interactions between a player, teammates, defenders, etc. So I just think it's really critical that we understand principles of play and we design those into what we're actually doing within a player development setting.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that, um, like I said, I was doing some of my own research on you, um, throughout this week. And I, I came across a handful of videos. I think one of them was, a I think the first practice of the season for, uh, for college prep, and you were laying down a lot of the foundation for everything going forward and kind of mapping out what sessions or practices look like, um, rules kind of principles, like you were saying. Um, and you're not only teaching obviously, skills techniques and all these important things understanding how to make decisions and creating and orchestrating an environment that's conducive to these players but you're also laying out well what's the most efficient shot a layup or what what is an inefficient shot a contested mid-range right so you'll get one point for that or you'll get five points for a wide open lay things like that so it's we're orchestrating a, a session and a practice so we don't have to explicitly teach these things, and I think that that's the biggest thing I, I I really took away from that, and I liked it.
1: No, that's exactly it. And ultimately, I think it's just getting the players um, skillful in the in the best areas. And I think shot selection is a great example of a task constraint where it's a very influential constraint because it really educates their intention and their attention. And one, you know, one of the prominent researchers. Uh, of of an ecological dynamics approach, Ian Renshaw, he's spoken about how intent is one of the most influential constraints. And you see that in shot shot selection because what it does is, I call it gold medals, you know, shots in the smile. When we really incentivize those and we don't really count, you know, mid-ranges and all that... Players become way more skillful at the most important thing, which is getting gold medals and because they're forced to do it. So then they get more possessions where they're doing that stuff. Now, you know, I would do some small-sided games too where we shoot mid-rangers just for just purely for developing more adaptive shooters. But the players know it's not a shot we're trying to take within our principles of play. And you know, previously, for instance, I'll give you an example. I was coaching in Belgium, and for me, it was it didn't end up well. I was actually fired from the program. This was just before COVID. Um, But I'm really pleased that I did it because it it really allowed me. I experienced firsthand things like siloed thinking. And for instance, the player development. I was a team coach there, but the player development coaches would do all the player development. It would be like a traditional approach mixed with a games approach. Um, and they'd spend a lot of time teaching floaters, you know, and doing these mid-range moves. And then obviously in my practices, we wouldn't shoot those shots. But it's that is just a perfect example of what's kind of going on all over the world. Even at the highest level, Tyler, there's a lack of kind of connected thinking. And for me, this is why it's so important that as organizations, regardless of the level, we have to have a shared theoretical understanding of, you know, what are our principles of play and then what skill acquisition ideas kind of make sense for bringing these to life. And, and if we don't do that, it's only going to lead to siloed thinking continuing as a very kind of predominant form of life within the basketball industry.
0: 100%. And I think uh, Noah uses the term shared cognition. Um, I I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, So, to kind of go off of that, I think that the communication aspect and everybody being on the same page absolutely is needs to we need to see that more throughout all levels, whether it's high school, college, MBA, yeah. pro, whatever it is. So what what has kind of been your approach to doing that? What has been your experience uh, talking to coaches at the pro level, college level? Cause I know that there's, I'm sure a lot of, you know not necessarily great impressions on it. The perception on it might not be great. Um, So what has been your experience kind of exposing that?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, my number one intent is basically not to come across as some type of nerdy basketball scientist from the UK with an English accent. And everyone's like, who the hell is this guy? So for me, it it starts with the relationships. And I think that's, if if we want to think differently, we have to know differently but then if we don't develop relationships in a way where we can positively influence other staff members later on, this stuff's never going to work because it's it's just such a paradigm shift to, I mean, when we understand ecological dynamics, it, it changes how we view the game. It doesn't just change how we coach, it changes everything. Uh, and this is just the momentous shift when people have been working one way for 10, 20, 30 years. So I think we have to invest in those relationships. And I think that's something I am going to learn about this year, you know, working obviously more, more now in the States. And I'm just going to have to find ways to to continue to try and simplify the message. And I think I'm I'm really lucky because I'm going into an extremely open-minded organization with amazing coaches. But I think it's it's really a case of how can we also break down. The research and make it accessible. Because because there's a big gap, in my opinion. There's a huge gap between the research and practice. And I think it's not easy. You'll know yourself. If you were to try and learn about contemporary skill acquisition, it is a long process. You have to read a lot. You have to take information from different sources. And there's conflicting kind of material which can put you off, which isn't correct. And I've gone through that process and it's it's really tough. Uh, so then not only is it do you, you know, you require a, an enormous amount of perseverance, but then when you try and describe this stuff to others, it's like, how can you make sense of what an affordance is? Like, where would you start? So I think it's, for me, what I've done a lot recently, Tyler, is just thinking about, you know, what is the most basic kind of thing that we use as an entry point and how do we expand from there? So really, I just spend a lot of time every day journaling, walking, thinking, and just Thinking about, all right, how can I describe ecological dynamics? How can I, you know, where, where will it begin? And and for me, now a, a very easy kind of low-hanging fruit is just variability. And and that's kind of for me, that's the easiest place to get coaches understanding this. And, you know, the the easiest practical application is in your next practice coaches encourage variability don't ever shoot in the same location different passes and if we start doing that you know i think that's kind of the first step on this long and winding path
0: absolutely and i i definitely agree with you i think that a lot of trainers that uh and you've you've talked about this before is like the survivorship bias um that's mostly what it is, right? Like we, we've grown up with with coaches and trainers that did something, it worked for us, it's worked for our friends, so we're going to continue to do it, maybe elevate in certain ways and that's great. And you're getting results and that's fine. But my my thing is always, why, why couldn't we try to expand? Why couldn't we try to be better? Yeah, but I, I definitely agree. I think that if we do it, the traditional approach, there is no really education. There is-ish, but it's more experience and more trial and error. Whereas with this approach and with an evidence-based approach, it's more so we're diving into the research and we're interpreting that research yeah. and applying that research and trial and error. But now it's like we're trying to apply some scientific concepts that are much yeah. more dense than just let's throw a cone out there, do some some moves and see if it works. And if the players get better, great. <laughs> if not, yeah. we'll, we'll do some other, some other drills. So I, I definitely hear what you're saying and, and the science can be dense. But I do think that it's, like you said, if we take time to recognize how people who have done the research and have kind of grinded it out, so to speak, can kind of help other people understand it better then we're we're helping others as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And really, Tyler, I mean, the researchers are there for our benefit. And it's like, you know, this is actually the conversation I had with Noah. Exactly. We said, you know, people are saying that we're the ones who are, innovative and smart and all this. But no, the research has existed. Keith, Keith Davids, the first paper that he released kind of challenging information processing the dominant skill acquisition theory, it was in 1994. And, and an, eco- an ecological approach was first conceptualized in the 2000s. So this, this research has been out there for 20 years. And the researchers are the ones who have done all this amazing work for us. And it's there it's readily accessible but it just you know it ha- people haven't kind of accessed it and really spent the time learning about it and and that to me is the science we shouldn't be intimidated by it and that's unfortunately something i've been seeing recently Ty, where you know i think a few trainers have seen what's emerging within this space and it's really exciting but i think they feel threatened by it somewhat and you know, I just think that that doesn't need to be the case because even if a coach has been using cones or doing traditional moves based coaching, it's never too late to change. And no one's going to think differently of you for changing and, and saying, oh, there might be a better way. If anything, I think people would respect you more for not being entrenched in your ways and just being open minded to an alternative approach.
0: Absolutely. And there is was there a post that you had, I think it was on ball handling and. Um, and it was a lot, like it was, you have partners, you got, I think both partners were dribbling a basketball, kind of just leaning into each other, just being very physical. You have it pinned on your Instagram or the top three. And there was some controversy throughout the comments. We mm-hmm. won't name any names, uh, but basically just talking, because I think you mentioned in the, the caption that you, you weren't even t- telling nobody, like you weren't telling anybody else to not do it. It's just from your experience and based on your, your knowledge, um, you don't do much one on one training for for ball handling or in general, really. And a lot of those trainers were saying, oh, like, why would you not do this? This is, that's basically stupid. And you kindly respond and say, well, it's fine. Like you can have your opinion, but this is why I do it. And I have plenty of research to, you guys obviously went back and forth, but I think it's, I think it's interesting. Like you said, I, I think that why wouldn't you open your mind to more concepts? If, to me, if you're already successful, why wouldn't you think, oh, well, I could be even better if I'm already this yeah. successful. If I could introduce more concepts, I could be even better. And also I think unfortunately, but fortunately for them, they have extremely talented individuals and maybe talented isn't even the correct word, just uh, genetically very oh. gifted individuals. And regardless of the the training that they were going to do, probably they were going to be that good of an athlete, but the training probably could have been better. They, they weren't good because of the training, they're, they're good despite the training, so to speak. Um, and I think that you, you see that a lot at, at the higher levels, but I'm, I'm curious now, since you've been in and out of the NBA and you're, will be back there again, what is the, uh, the athlete's perception of that kind of thing? Cause I know <clears throat> sometimes, especially if you're working with million dollar athletes, they might not want to play live or they might want not want to go hard and yeah. risk injury, quote unquote. So what, what is their perception been of this kind of stuff?
1: So I actually I had a great experience of that last year, Tyler, working with Paris Basketball. So we played in the Euro Cup, um, working with Will Weaver as the head coach. Uh, Will's now the uh, the assistant at the Brooklyn Nets. So every practice we did was CLA, and I mean, a to have a head coach such as Will who is all in on it. I think that's huge to the basketball world. And so we did this from preseason to the last practice of the season entirely CLA. Now, of course, on our low stress days, it was less representative, but it was still variable. We started coaches in there playing some form of defense and we never like instruct and do moves. So we achieved it. And I think what was really interesting was just seeing how the, play- the players brought in during the course of the season very quickly. And I-, I think they see how much more engaging it is than doing traditional tasks and also how much it makes them better. And I think at the end of the day, players are smart because they want to work with people who are going to make them better and make them more money. It's it's basic. And I think that is where, with the CLA, it's it sells itself. Now, I think the key thing is we have to... I, I use this acronym of Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. And we got to make sure when we're using the CLA, we, or something like differential learning, which I use a lot in shooting, We can't go in straight away with, you know, very kind of extreme things that they won't be used to. So, for instance, some of the things I could do in my college prep environment would would not have been done at the start in Paris. It was just getting the players used to small-sided games and constraint manipulations was a huge win. But then, by the end of the season, we could really manipulate constraints well because they understood small-sided games. They could kind of figure it out well. Whereas the first week, it was it was very different. They found it challenging just to kind of grasp what was going on instead of having everything predetermined. So for me, I think it's... And and, and the best thing is we don't even need to describe this to the players. We just do it. And I, I think sometimes you might have inquisitive players. Like I had a few of the players who were really like model pros and after a couple of weeks, we kind of had a, a really good relationship, and they were just in curious about it. And I, I told them, I said, "Look, I can, I can send you a couple of papers if you're interested." And and very, very intellectual guys, and and I, and they read them and they loved it. And for the rest of the season, it was it was easy. So you might have a few cases like that, and if the players do ask, then I just I just explain. But um, I think just kind of doing it is the easiest way to start. Now it is different with the staff. I do think it's essential that the staff know, you know, the theory behind this. But with the players, as long as we have good tasks, we can go straight in. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I've I've found that that's pretty consistent with me as well. Um, I haven't worked with nearly as many players as you have, I'm sure. Um, but the players that I have exposed this stuff to, they, yeah. the ones that are really invested and honestly, the better players are like very curious, like you said, in what we're doing yeah. and what what's a good feeling is uh somebody that i work really close with um the past two years he just moved on to a division two school and he just called me today and he was saying he was like this is gonna be a good year in general but he was like it's also like i'm putting myself in a position now where i'm training other people use using the concepts that like i've taught him and that he and i have done so it's cool to know you know he's now kind of doing that stuff with his team and now they're gonna get better in that way it's 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 interesting stuff yeah, uh, it's fun. <laughs> um, so I w- kind of want to take a, a different turn now. So, could we, if you can, get into a little bit of detail as far as your approach to kind of practice design? Um, and you can do this with college prep, with whichever athlete or team that you want. Um what would a typical session look like for you? Um, And yeah, just take us through a session.
1: Yeah, great question. So I think a lot of people were shocked kind of how the pace of our practices in a player development team, team practice, whatever. And one of the biggest kind of things I'm trying to get across is how a constraints-led approach is very different to a games approach. So what I mean by that is, I think a lot of people kind of confuse the CLA for let's create a small-sided game and let's just play it and boom, there we go. It's about a lot more than that. And I I think, yes, we use small-sided games in the CLA, but that to me is really where the similarities stop. And yes, of course, the games approach is more representative than drills, but it's the manipulation of constraints and how we're actually coaching within it which is the differentiator. And for instance, I'm seeing, Tyler, a lot of kind of coaches use small sided games are coaching heavily within it, giving instruction, maybe even doing drills and kind of teaching a move and then creating a small sided game for that move to emerge or whatever. And I think that, you know, it's good that coaches are doing small sided games, but the CLA is something different. So we, we have to know why we're manipulating constraints. And for me, that's based on. Principles of play, number one, to shape these principles of play. And number two, based on rate limiters. And these are things relative to every individual player, which are basically preventing them from becoming more skillful. So uh, you know, constraints can obviously target these rate limiters, and then we can get players self-organizing or better attuning to their affordance landscapes. So yeah. that is why I'm doing constraints. And I wanted to make that clear that it's not just me randomly designing some small-sided games so you know we we went back at college prep we cataloged every single kind of activity we did during the year we had something like 900 different activities just in team practices not even player development so like every practice would do new stuff and the reason why we weren't doing that just for frivolity just for you know let's do something new today it was because there was a specific purpose behind it and I'd spoke with my staff, we felt there was some type of principle of play that we needed to shape, there was an affordance we needed to amplify, we needed to kind of enhance the functionality of finishing from one particular situation. So and that is what informed our practice design. So I'll just kind of go a little bit deeper into that. So we always start with some type of warm up, and that is very different to a traditional warm up. So, we basically want to open up the system degrees of freedom. So, that's basically all the different components of the human body. And that's really important because if players can move in different ways, they're going to be able to become more skillful performers. So, we'd always do different things for our warm ups. We did a lot of co design where players actually have a chance to be involved in practice. So, I might give them some constraints and then they go about designing their own tasks. We did a lot of shooting in between our small sided games. And sometimes that would be differential learning where, you know, we're shooting from different stances, different positions, landing in unique ways, doing handstands before we shoot, loads of different things within DL. Um, And I'd say it's very non linear. So for instance, we might play five on five early in a practice. Then we might go to some one on one plus one. Then we might go to some three on three, jump around a little bit. And I have a practice plan, but me, myself and my staff were really ready to go off script. And I think as a staff, you know, during times I had six coaches on the court with me. It was really cool. We had coaches kind of from all over the world who were, who wanted to learn about the CLA and they just came on their own accord to Italy and spent the year with me. And we were just really intentional with things like feedback instead of everyone just giving generic feedback saying, good job, good job. We all had like very specific tasks and, you know, it was like a well-oiled, it was like a well-oiled operation. It was really enjoyable. And just last thing I'd say is probably the biggest kind of takeaway for coaches is it can be confusing to understand how to use the CLA. So for us, it was just a case of we wanted to follow the five principles of a nonlinear pedagogy in every practice. So there are basically five design principles. And if you do these, you're basically using the CLA well, but we want to do all of them instead of violating one. So these are representative learning design, uh, relevant information movement uh, couplings, manipulation of constraints, functional variability, and externalized focus of attention. So I'd kind of have those five things, which I'm always aware of. And then we're just making sure that like every practice activity, unless it's differential learning, is abiding by those five design principles.
0: Absolutely. I, I like it. Thank you for, for expanding on that. Um I so I think a lot of time and you you're on record talking about kind of five on zero and like three man weave, those kind of things. Um, and I don't love those. I don't think there's much of a time or place for them. Um, regardless of what somebody's reasoning might be, I don't really think that it's gonna help somebody get better, especially a team whenever you have say 15 people, why would you not utilize all those people? So could you just talk about, and I know you've kind of alluded to it and we haven't necessarily gotten too far deep into it yet. Um, but kind of just expand on why is it so important to engage the brain and why is it so important for that feedback of having, even if it's just one person, one kind of, one kind of defender, or even if it is a coach and it's kind of a guided discovery, why is that so important for development?
1: Great point, Tyler. And I think, it's really funny looking at these traditional drills take something like a 3 on weave because I had a conversation here in London with a coach about it last week and it's just there's so much in the game of basketball and we have so much limited time so for me it's just every single minute of a practice I want to be spending it on the things which players are going to be exposed to and what they're going to encounter within their environment and I just think The excuse a lot of the time for something like three-man weave is, oh, it's just to get the guys loose. But it's not getting them loose because it's not even a good warm-up because it's such a narrow range of movement solutions. And again, it's just tradition. That's the only reason it's done It's because it's what coaches are comfortable with. So it's like, for me, not only is the three-man weave ineffective because it hasn't got authentic affordances within it, it's predetermined it's not it's not effective because it's got no principles of play which even correlate to the game. So what I mean by that is if, if you're going to do a transition drill with a pro team, three on zero, and you're going to maybe create a two side on the weak side and you're going to do some type of skip pass to the two side and score for domino sequence, I wouldn't do that personally, but I would understand it because it's a principle of play. Uh, I think it would be more optimal if we add even just like you said, one coach playing defense, depending on you know whether it's a low, moderate, high practice day. Obviously, I'd prefer to have defenders, but I can get that. But when we're just doing these drills which have no correlation to how a team plays, all we're actually doing is I think we're disrespecting the players' time and we're just giving unnecessary load. And I'd rather just spend every minute on, you know, instead of me doing a two-hour practice, which I'm, I see a lot of pro teams in Europe doing, I'd rather get in, get out in 50 minutes using the CLA. The load is the same, mission accomplished. We've practiced in a way more representative setting. The players got better. We're better prepared, right? So that's kind of my spiel on it. And I think it's just it's cutting the fluff. And so many of these drills and so many conversations I'm having with coaches is we don't have time for fluff. We just don't. So eliminate the fluff and get straight to small-sided games with good constraint manipulations, with coherent principles of play based on how you want your team to play in the four phases of the game.
0: Yeah, 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Just just curious, you talk a lot about representation. Obviously, that's extremely important. Um, From a psychological standpoint, obviously, if you're playing a lot of small-sided games, doing some differential learning adding and manipulating constraints um you're gonna have a lot of stresses and especially psychologically but have you fooled around with things like maybe volume of music um a crowd like figuring out different things to kind of stress your players psychologically to prepare them for the game because that's i feel like the one component or the one factor in a lot of practices that we can almost never get you know, as close as possible to a real live game because we're not going to yeah. have hundreds of people watching our practices. Um, so what has what what kind, kind of been your approach to the psychological stress of things?
1: Absolutely. So I love, that's a great example of manipulating environmental constraints. And I think, you know, these constraints are a lot harder for coaches to manipulate versus a task constraint, which is obviously incredibly easy to do. Um, but something I did a lot last year was playing music and what that could be would be crowd sounds even sometimes i might play something really weird for the players like opera just to see how they responded and you know very intentionally use different musical kind of uh genres and, and see what they did um one of my favorites was with our differential learning shooting i loved playing music which was very kind of rhythmic and just encouraged them to to move in different ways so we ha- i had a great miles davis playlist you know and he was one of my favorite musicians, just from the traditional jazz to the really new school stuff that he pioneered later in his career. So, you know, do a lot of stuff like that. And I think too, I've my biggest focus over the last year has basically been learning about an ecological approach in other fields, not just coaching. So I spent a lot of time, Tyler, looking at applying an ecological approach to physio, to athletic performance, to front office, to all these fields. And I've actually have had some great conversations with someone who I'm now is a friend of mine called Andy Bass. And he is the mental performance coordinator of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I think baseball is far ahead of the NBA. We it's just insane how far ahead it is. Almost every team has a skill acquisition coach. The NBA has one out of 30 teams. But so Andy is basically applying an ecological approach to mental skills. It's really cool. So something else I did was for my better players, Tyler, in practice, I might do things in our small-sided games where uh, they foul, they're on team fouls, have one foul to give, they foul out if 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 they get to five, or the other team, it's a game to twelve points, their team their team's on zero, the other team starts on six. So you know, loads of different ways I try and basically stimulate this pressure. Um, and yeah i think it, i think it's really important because practice it's never going to be like the game and i think we have to think about how we can creatively use constraints to try and ramp this pressure up a little bit and make it more representative uh if we really you know want to increase the, the transfer of skills from practice to to game performance
0: absolutely yeah it's i think it's it's fun to get creative as a coach in that aspect obviously um and there's <clears throat> there's been some things that i've fooled around with as well i've like midway like if i I try to read obviously the player's body language as much as possible um and there's been times that i'm playing a certain type of music or a song that comes on and a player is super hyped up and like right before a rep or right before they shoot I either turn it off or i like change the song or the the genre because you never know what's going to happen psychologically or, or definitely mentally in a game somebody could say something to you that might completely throw you off or completely change your entire Everything about the game in that situation. So just di- different ways. I, I I like it. Um, I was listening to an interview I think Wednesday, and um, you guys brought up a a topic that I thought was very interesting. I thought it was fun. Um, you kind of brought the concept of video games and games in general cool. into your practices. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned even games like Fortnite, Battleship. Can you just kind of take me into your approach there, and what what was your thought process? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So. Great, great question, Todd. It's actually links to what you said earlier about getting buy-in from the players using the CLA. And you know, I want to make I want to make practice the best part of their day. So, you know, I'm really kind of I'm all in on the ideas of transformational leadership, and obviously, I think that connects really well to CLA. So, part of that is you know how can we not only create really engaging practices, but also um, you know. Create practices where there's a good level of challenge, and the players get better. So I came across a paper which was talking about this was about two years ago. I came across this research paper talking about how some like you know uh, modern coaches could benefit from implementing ideas from video games. And I read the paper; it was you know an ecological, an ecologically orientated paper, but it was great. And I just got thinking, well why haven't I thought about this before? Uh, All these games I remember, I've seen my friends playing them when I was younger. I see the, the guys on the team playing them. Why don't we just turn them into basketball? They'll love it. So my first one was Battleship. I actually kind of, well, that one came before the paper. I invented that one about four years ago when I was in Belgium. And I came up with that to solve the problem of my team always running triggers in the same location. So, We had our first trigger, which was a get as our principle of play. But the problem was it was very unpredictable and they always ran it through the trail. So you can imagine it was causing us all sorts of problems with teams denying it, getting lots of turnovers off it, not creating advantages. So, you know, I was reflecting in the the park one day on a walk and I I take my journal with me. I was just, you know, writing some ideas down. And then I was like, all right, so the intention is how can we, create a task where they are naturally encouraged to run these triggers in different locations versus me as the coach getting blue in the face, yelling, run it in a different place, run in a different place. So then Battleship just came to mind. It's something I played as a kid. So the premise of Battleship is let's take a get, right? You have to, the first team to win is the team that scores of maybe four gets, which start dominoes in four different locations on the, on the, on the court. So naturally the players start becoming attuned to where they're initiating triggers and what they need to win. So it's it, it's an amazing game, develops uh, communication and, and everything. It's just so cool to see. So that is the essence of a battleship. And obviously you can do it for any trigger, um, pick and roll, off ball screens, dribble handles, whatever whatever it is. And it become it became one of our favorite games, and it was incredibly competitive, and the players absolutely loved it. So that kind of gave me the motivation to branch out into other areas, such as Fortnite, Hitman, uh, and you know other other ideas of, the, of a similar kind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you don't see a lot of coaches really trying to stretch themselves in that way to to connect with their their players in that way to keep them engaged and. Like you said, you, you would think that coach, especially kind of go back to some of our first points, like coaches might not necessarily be so open-minded to these concepts, but if you think about it, it could be as easy as why would you, like you could save yourself so much trouble of screaming so you're blue in the face to go to a different location where you just have to think a little bit more critically, how can I just get this implicitly without me having to exert myself in this way? Like, why why do you want to scream like that? Why can't you just yeah. figure it out so it's easier on everybody? So- I I definitely appreciate your your mind and that approach a lot. That's
1: it. And I I think it's funny because a lot of coaches who maybe watched my games or college prep, you know, obviously a lot of the coaches who watched the games were naturally interested in skill acquisition. So they got it right. But then a lot of coaches who I coached against or people who observed me coaching, who maybe didn't know about kind of this space and kind of the work I've been trying to pioneer, they were often quite critical of how I coached and, The reason why is because I felt like if I was having to be a PlayStation coach in the game, it's really just a poor indictment of how ineffective I've been in the practice setting. And when it came to the game, you know, my players could basically, I I could be redundant. They didn't really need me. You know, I made substitutions. I offered some key feedback here and there. I drew some nice ATOs. But, you know, in most games, you know, we had a really good record as a team. We lost... Six games the whole year, um, so you know we had a great record playing at a high level of European basketball with players all over the world playing with each other for the first time. And it's not rocket science, you know. It's but they they were so prepared from how we practice that when it came to the game, they were independent. They communicated with each other, and often at times they could run a timeout themselves. And honestly, they a lot of them could draw ATOs better than most coaches at the youth level in Europe. And that to me is the aim of coaching. It's to make yourself redundant. Now, a lot of coaches would frown at me saying that. And, you know, I understand why. And I'm not for one moment saying the role of a coach is not important. Absolutely not. It's it's critical. But what I'm talking about is if you're an effective coach and you're using contemporary skill acquisition ideas, you know, your role should somewhat be, you know, not as, you shouldn't need to be as all over in the game because you've done your job in
0: practice and your players are prepared for it absolutely and i think that the perception is almost twisted in a lot of areas um, where you want to do most of the dirty work in games you want to do all the x's and o's draw the plays do all this stuff and it it may come from a place of ego i don't want to make that a blanket statement or a general statement obviously but um yeah and i maybe you and i can talk about this more at another time i know we're kind of running low on time um, but it's also an interesting concept to think about, kind of the education system and how we're brought up, and oh yeah, how you know traditionally we're boxed in from a from a mental and and thoughtful process, and hugely, hugely, yeah, like, it, yeah. hugely.
1: I, I think an ecological approach, just I, I'd love to see it applied in the classroom. Hundred um, percent. We we've seen teaching ideas come into basketball over the last few years, and I'm very critical of them um just because they're not based on skill acquisition research and teaching is completely 100%. different to basketball right and everyone is kind of saying oh did you read this book and it's like yeah i read the book but it's it's pseudoscience and it's like but if we look at an ecological approach it's it's not just skill acquisition it's 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 human interaction and Absolutely. i think so much of that would be so effective in the classroom setting
0: i think so too i think i think we could do a better job educating and i think that should be a basic human thing that we all learn to some degree um but how much do you need to get out of here right now or we
1: can take a few more man absolutely
0: okay um we don't have to get into anything uh big anymore necessarily uh kind of just wanted to pick your brain and out some some fun questions here and there so cool. what is you think your favorite way to learn oh great question um
1: reading doing reflecting i would say so the reflection is a is a big part of it and and people know me as a planner like i'll give example. like i i've got notes on every book i've read since i was like 16 years old here on my laptop right now and i'm i'm very kind of specific trying to i make notes on everything i read um and then i summarize it and i revisit it and then the, the key thing is tyler i try and apply it so I I think too. Like when I first when I really started reading, I was not critical. But when I really understood skill act, I'd say now I'm highly selective with the books I read, and it's it's very different. Like now I would not be reading books that I read even three years ago. But um, what I do is I just I just really try and focus on it, and I some of these some of the research papers and the books they're challenging. So I really just try and reflect on it and think about what it means and sometimes I don't understand it. And that's when I call a friend or I ask a researcher and I'm not scared to reach out. Like I've DMs, like basically every researcher of an ecological space just to be curious. And I, I think it's good to do that because they want, they want to share their work. They're all Absolutely. great guys, these researchers. So I, and then, then I do it in practice and this was college prep. This is basically why I did it instead of being like a professional coach in Europe, I wanted to have complete creative control. And instead of being like an assistant, I wanted to be a head coach and make the decisions, experiment and try it out. And college prep was my ultimate experiment. For three years, I was in Italy. So I I basically watched every practice back and I would just think, all right, how would I do this differently again tomorrow? So for the last three years, I've had every morning free from like 9 a.m. to one where I just do my research then I'd have all my lunch and meals were provided by the club. So I got all my food taken care of, which was great. Didn't have to think about that. I was a five-minute walk from the gym in a tiny town. So the whole environment, when we look at the CLA, the environment was optimal for me to learn and to develop. Um And and that's basically what I tried to do. And, and I, I think it it can be difficult because there are so many distracting sources so what i'd say to coaches is to be not just to be intentional about learning but to try and make sure you're learning from the right sources so that you don't get confused or you know come across conflicting material because i that's what happened to me early on and it's it's tough
0: absolutely to kind of go off of that if you had to give maybe one or two whether it's a book an article uh, individual to coaches that are kind of just now getting into this world where would you where would you uh lead them yeah
1: absolutely well i guess some shameless self-promotion i i do have a book which is i haven't really announced it yet in a big way but it's it's going to come out probably towards the end of this year and it's basically to make sense of everything that we discussed today and yeah. help coaches if they're exposed to this for the first time it's basically going all in on contemporary skill acquisition and putting it into very practical easy to understand terms so i really hope that will kind of help change the basketball world and and that's actually the name of the book and my new company is transforming basketball and that's the goal you know we really want to show how these ideas can resonate with practitioners of of all levels in addition to that i think you know all the researchers i think it's it's so worth coaches knowing names such as Keith Davids, Duarte Roujo, Ian Renshaw, um, Rob Gray, and his book, How He Learned to Move is excellent, and his podcast. Um, there are just so many, Ricard Woods, Marco Sullivan. There are just so many of these. There you go, right there. Exactly. And just doing a Google search will take you down a rabbit hole. And I think... On that note, like something like Twitter or X, as it's now known, is, is a great learning resource. You can follow all the researchers on there. And that's basically how I knew about all the papers. So I basically follow all these researchers. When a new paper comes out, I read it immediately. And then i maybe talk to a friend about it. If I'm stuck, boom. And, and then I, we start, you know, it changes my practice. So that's kind of where I'd start.
0: Great. Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to to get my hands on the book whenever it's ready. Um, I appreciate that, man. So let's go three more real quick ones, just fun questions. If you were stranded on an island and you only had one meal for the rest of your life, what, what meal would that be?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So this is, this is actually funny because coming from Italy where I had the club doing all my meals and then my girlfriend cooking when I wasn't there – Nice. I just moved back to London. And I basically got no clue what I'm doing. So basically every day for the last week, I made chicken wraps with lettuce. There's like the there easiest go. thing. So I think, I think it's going to have to be that. It's like a five minute meal.
0: Hey, <laughs> It's quick and easy. Exactly. Basically gets all the macros you need. There you <laughs> go. Um. you If you had to carry one book with you for the rest of your life, um, doesn't have to be just skill acquisition in general it could just be life if you had to pick one book what would that one be
1: oh great question man that's a really profound question huh so my my biggest passions are uh, so I, the only things i read now are really skill acquisition or things about history and life so i mean like just looking at my bookshelf here it's basically i did history at university and that's my biggest that's- passion so i The area I actually like the most is Polish history, just from some of my ancestry as grandparents. So I think I might take something on that. Um, And I just, for me, history is a release because I, I think you have to have outlets aside from skill acquisition because it's too intense if that's the only thing. So my outlets are basically reading some historical books and playing saxophone. And I think you have to have that because otherwise it's just, you're going to be consumed by it.
0: That's that's pretty cool. Saxophone is a is a cool thing to do outside of like you may it, think. It's basketball. how I got the
1: the jazz versus classical analogy, which I've stopped using because I, I overdid it during the COVID period, but it might come back sometime in the future.
0: That's great. The more you know, huh? Um <laughs> all right, let's go last one, and this can be like our last question. Um if 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 there was one thing that you would like others to remember you uh, for? What would what would be the thing that you would like to leave behind for everybody to yeah, remember you guys?
1: Absolutely. So I can speak to this because it was, you know, over the last two years, it's been a really difficult decision for me to go like all in on the NBA route mm-hmm. or keep sharing this message. And I think I still honestly haven't made the decision, but the reason why I'm kind of doing it this way this year is so that I could do Transforming Basketball, the new brand. And it's, for me, it's just, I want to change the basketball world. And I I don't want to say that I haven't, I don't consider myself as having a big ego. And I think people who know me know that I really don't. Instead. I just, I want players to get a better experience of our sport. And I want coaches to actually enjoy themselves more and unlock themselves, which is what I think the CLA does. It changes your perspective on life. So I, I just want to transform how we think about basketball performance and I would like in my lifetime for transformational coaching in the CLA to become the dominant approach. And I hope that, you know, the work of myself and several others who, you know, guys who are doing work in this space to, you know, sharing content on social media. I think it's a collective effort for all of us to keep changing the tide because it needs it. And, you know, we remember as players, I remember as a player, the negative experiences I had of basketball and, you you know, players at any level, they don't deserve that. It's 2023. And, you know, Bernstein's research came out almost a century ago, and yet we're still stuck in the past. So I just want to be known for kind of shifting the basketball landscape and hopefully disrupting, you know, the traditional paradigms, which are currently existing, not because I just want to challenge the status quo, but because there's a very important reason behind why we adopt a contemporary approach in the present day.
0: Absolutely. I think you're doing a phenomenal job, man. I, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and I'm glad that I was um put onto your stuff and I'll definitely, you definitely have a supporter in me and I would, I would love to keep this relationship going.
1: 100% Tyler. And you know, I'm just super grateful for, for you having me on the podcast and I think, yeah, it just makes me really, really pleased to see, you know, coaches, trainers like yourself doing an awesome job kind of applying the research. And yeah, that's what we need more of. And we just got to keep sharing the practical message.
0: Absolutely. Well, with that being said, do you want to just kind of list off where people can find you um, and just plug away to anything?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, man. So um, really kind of how everything started for me was on X, so only Twitter. So it's just Alex Sarama. And yeah, that's kind of, I've I've just shared so much on there. Uh, I do have an Instagram too. It's just Alex J Sarama. Someone else had taken Alex Sarama, so I had to add that unnecessary J. But uh I, I got a bunch of kind of posts on there um with some pretty long captions, really just explaining kind of what this looks like. And then the new company is is going to be transforming basketball. So we're gonna be sharing kind of a bunch of a bunch of content through that too. Uh have a website, blogs, you know, all of that stuff. So yeah. And, you know, I'm very, very open if if coaches or trainers have a question, just DM me and I'll, I'll gladly get back to you and, you know, have a conversation about where to start.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Feel free to DM because, or I should say, feel free to DM, obviously. Hopefully you're okay with that. Absolutely. <laughs> regarding regarding uh, skill acquisition, maybe not just DM him some random stuff, but <laughs> um, that's how he and I connected. So I, I think that he'll definitely be open if you have uh, questions. So, and everything that you just mentioned, Twitter or X, um, some of the YouTube videos that I saw, some podcasts that I listened to, I'll also just link those into the show notes for anybody that oh, wants right. to know um and then whenever the platform is out i can also just go back and edit the podcast and oh, attach that to the show notes so thanks Alex, so much I, I appreciate your time man it's been great
1: no my pleasure really enjoyed it thank you so much